Usually, disappearances leave a mystery in their wake. Clues that fan out in a hundred directions without anything to tie them together. But today's case is the opposite. It's full of connective tissue. The setup is familiar. A young woman's life is violently cut short. The only suspect is a man she barely knew. The circumstantial evidence all points towards him, but there's not enough direct evidence to prosecute. In stories like these, the truth seems obvious, yet the case hasn't budged in years. It's extremely frustrating, but there's something we can do. We can keep the victim's memory top of mind, continue pushing for answers, and we can remember that even when a case feels impossible, justice is worth fighting for. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 19-year-old dance teacher who went missing from her studio on Oahu, Hawaii, just moments after class let out. 40 years later, her story still hasn't been laid to rest. Her name is Diane Suzuki. From the outside, the Rosalie Woodson Dance Academy doesn't look like much. It's four dance studios crammed into a strip mall just outside of Honolulu, Hawaii. And yet, by the mid-1970s, Rosalie Woodson has built a thriving community of ballerinas in training. She centers her studio around Ohana, a Hawaiian word for extended family, or a tight-knit community with shared loyalty, support, and compassion. Rosalie instills these values in her students. She trains dancers, but creates role models. One of the girls who grows up taking classes at the dance studio is Diane Suzuki. As a little kid, she learns jazz, ballet, and tap alongside her older sisters. There are five Suzuki girls in total, all of whom are taught and beloved by Rosalie. She says the Suzuki girls are like the daughter she never had. But of the five, Diane's the one with a real talent for dance. As her sisters develop other interests, she devotes almost all her time to the studio. By 1981, Diane's 15 and Rosalie's prize student. She even starts teaching children's classes at the studio part-time. And over the next three years, she becomes a favorite instructor at the dance academy. And it's easy to see why. At 4'11", she's barely taller than her students, but her confidence and charisma make her a natural leader. Her friends and family say she has a magnetic personality that just draws others in. And that's on full display anytime she takes the stage. It's impossible to take your eyes off her. It's clear when you watch her, Diane was born to dance. Diane graduates high school in 1984. She enrolls at the University of Hawaii and auditions for their resident company, the Rainbow Dancers. Not only does she make the cut, their former director, Richard Lum, says she's one of the best performers they've ever had. Between school, teaching, and rehearsals, Diane's busy, but she manages to stay active in her church. She's president of the local Young Buddhist Association, or YBA. They elect her chair of their convention, which takes place annually around the end of July. 
She also finds time to compete in the Junior Miss Hawaii pageant and wins first runner-up. Clearly, Diane's someone who thrives when challenging herself. Case in point, her schedule for the summer of 1985. In July, the Dance Academy holds its annual recital, which is a lot of work for the staff. As soon as the production wraps, she's on to the next event, planning for the YBA's annual convention, which she's supposed to head. It seems like the only break she gets all summer is on Saturday, July 6th. To reward all their hard work on the recital, Rosalie books her teaching staff a weekend at the Turtle Bay Hilton on Oahu's North Shore. The resort's just an hour up Route 83, and everyone's excited to go. Around lunchtime on Friday, July 6, 1985, Rosalie and most of the other teachers head to the resort. But Diane and a 15-year-old instructor, a woman who I'll call Cassie, stay behind. They still have afternoon classes. They plan to leave around 3 p.m., just in time to beat rush hour. Cassie wraps up her class around 2.45. She follows her kids out the door, making sure they find their parents in the parking lot. Then she heads upstairs and pops into room 306, where Diane is teaching. She watches from the back for a few minutes. Around 2.55, Diane is wrapping up and Cassie heads downstairs to the office. She wants to pick up a few things and use the phone to call a friend on the mainland. About 10 minutes later, Cassie ends the call and heads out to the parking lot. The students are gone, but so is Diane. Cassie expected her to be waiting by her car. So she goes back upstairs to see what's taking Diane so long. They have a party to get to. When she arrives, room 306 is empty. Diane's bag sitting in the corner. She doesn't see anyone except for a man that occasionally works upstairs. It's not quite clear what his role is or how many at the studio actually knew him. The man says Diane left a few minutes ago, which Cassie finds hard to believe. She wouldn't have run off without telling her, especially not without her stuff. While talking to this guy, Cassie notices fresh blood on his hand. She asks him about it, but he shrugs it off, saying he cut himself on a pair of scissors. Cassie doesn't press him any further. She grabs Diane's bag and heads downstairs for another sweep of the studio, but Diane's nowhere in sight. Soon, the dance school secretary calls Diane's parents to ask if Diane ever came home. They say she didn't. Nobody knows where she is. Diane's dad, Masaharu, heads over to the studio. At first, he's more annoyed than anything. Diane is one of five teenagers he's raised. He knows how kids can be. He figures she ran off and might turn up in an hour or so. But when he arrives, Cassie gives him Diane's bag with her purse, shoes, and jazz slippers inside. For some reason, her car keys are missing, which is strange because Diane's little green car is still parked outside. At some point, Masaharu crosses paths with the man upstairs. Like Cassie, he asks if he's seen Diane, but once again, the man says no. He was just in the studio and she wasn't up there. Around 5 p.m., Diane's mom Yuri shows up, followed by some other family members. The Suzukis call the police and report Diane missing. Officers are dispatched immediately. Though Diane's car keys are missing, police find her back seat unlocked. They search the vehicle, but all they find is a bag of lychee. By 6 p.m., some neighbors join the Suzukis and the police to search for Diane. The Dance Academy is located on the first and second floors of an office building in the middle of a strip mall. 
So between the parking lot, the nearby businesses, and the city streets, there's a sizable area to canvas. Around 2 a.m., nearly 12 hours after Diane was last seen, they get a hold of the strip mall's owner and ask him to open all the offices in the building. They spend two more hours searching, but they don't find anything. Around 4 a.m., the volunteer party disbands to get some sleep. Meanwhile, police keep their search efforts going. After finding nothing on Sunday, technicians come back to comb the entire dance studio for evidence. They don't find anything in room 306 where Rosalie was teaching, but the bathroom is another story. The bathroom is freshly cleaned, which is unusual because on Saturday, the entire staff raced out the door to get up to a party. Nobody's held class in the studio since. When would someone have had time to deep clean the bathroom? The techs also record damage to the bathroom door frame and jam, as well as gouges on the wall near the toilet. According to their notes, the markings indicate a possible forced entry. It looks like a struggle took place. At this point, police assume that wherever Diane is, she didn't go willingly. But this is the 80s, the earliest days of DNA testing, so there's not much more officials can glean from the bathroom. At least not yet. Later that afternoon, investigators pay a visit to the man from upstairs, the one with the cut on his hand. They invite him down to the station for an interview and to take a polygraph, which he fails. Every time his interviewer asks about Diane Suzuki, the test reports deception. Now, I'm gonna give my usual disclaimer. Polygraphs are not always accurate and rarely admissible in court. In this case, officials are really just trying to collect any and all information. And while conducting their interview, officials notice something that feels significant. The man has scratches on his back, arms, and hand. It may or may not be a coincidence, but the police intend to find out. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. After Diane Suzuki goes missing, more than 1,000 volunteers show up to the first official canvassing effort. It's organized by her father and the Suzuki's next-door neighbor, Peter Gibo. Peter spearheads another effort the next day and the day after that. In no time, the search grows into a massive island-wide affair. While some search for Diane on foot, others plaster photos of Diane's face across the island. Over the next two weeks, they distribute more than 20,000 flyers. The Suzukis are overwhelmed by the outpouring of support, but it isn't necessarily surprising. As Peter Gibo explains, their community has always embraced Ohana. They see each other as family. On the official end of things, there's a team of 15 detectives working Diane's case. They're focused on the man who was at the studio that day, 
the one with cuts on his arm, back, and hand, who failed the polygraph test. In late July, officials get a warrant to search his home. He lives in the area. Officials find a plastic bag filled with detergent-soaked rags and a blood-stained shirt. It seems like a major discovery, but the problem is, it's nearly impossible to connect the items to Diane's disappearance. Police feel sure they're on the right track, but it's not enough to make an arrest. It's certainly not the outcome the Suzuki's were hoping for. And they're not the only ones distraught by Diane's disappearance. Rosalie Woodson, Diane's dance teacher, is also devastated. Remember, she thought of Diane as a daughter, and it seems likely that whatever happened to Diane happened under her roof at her studio. Police show up at the property basically every day for two months, retracing their steps and searching for any clues they might have missed. They're a constant reminder of Diane's disappearance, and they do nothing to help business. Nervous parents start pulling their kids out of classes. The studio takes a massive hit, and by the end of the summer, investigators' efforts don't lead to any new revelations. They can't connect Diane's disappearance to any suspect. There just isn't enough evidence. But the community doesn't give up. Peter Gibo organizes search parties nearly every weekend for the next year. He gets a topographical map of Oahu and divides up the island by terrain. That way, his volunteers know exactly where they'll be searching and what to expect. When they finish canvassing the entire island, they start again. They retread certain areas four, maybe five times. Speaking on behalf of their community about what motivates them, Peter tells the Honolulu Star Bulletin, Diane represented what we want our children to be. Soon, a different kind of support arrives in the form of letters. Just a few at first, then dozens, then hundreds. They're from people across the island. Many send money to help the Suzuki's, either directly or to add to a fund. By January 1986, the family is able to offer a $10,000 reward for anyone with information that leads to Diane's safe return. It's hard to measure the impact of this kind of help. But privately, Diane's parents are struggling to cope with their daughter's absence. Diane's mother, Yuri, leaves her church group and withdraws from social activities and largely isolates. It hurts too much to see other girls Diane's age. She especially can't bring herself to drive by the dance studio. Diane's father, Masaharu, finds it difficult to celebrate anything anymore. He tells one reporter, quote, at parties, you're laughing and having a good time, and all of a sudden you think, why am I having fun when Diane is out there in misery somewhere? As a family, the Suzuki's aren't quite ready to experience joy again. Diane's sister Susan puts her life on pause too. Susan got engaged before Diane went missing. Now she can't imagine planning a wedding or getting married without her sister at the ceremony. For Susan, the weight of what they've lost is tangible. Her parents' home feels suffocating. From the moment she walks through the door, the pressure builds until all she wants to do is leave and cry. The Suzuki's adopt different rituals to ease the pain. They're Buddhist, so they have a small shrine in their home. Every day, they make a rice offering and pray for Diane's safe return. On May 14, 1986, Diane's 20th birthday, they also offer up a chocolate cupcake with pink icing and a little ballerina on top. 
The cupcake sits there on the shrine for at least a month. Nobody has the heart to throw it out. Yuri keeps a photo album full of newspaper clippings and flyers, any news she can collect on her daughter. She jokes that she's saving them for Diane's return, so she can tease her daughter about all the trouble she's caused. By the summer of 1986, though, the Suzukis start to wonder if Diane will ever see those newspaper clippings, which is devastating for two reasons. There's the obvious part. The loss of a child is enough to break anyone. But when a Soto Zen Buddhist dies, their soul begins a seven-part journey to become a so-called pure spirit. The family holds seven services over 49 days to help the deceased through this process, where they're supposed to meet different angels and guides to help them on their path to enlightenment. But having the body present is considered important to this tradition. Without one, the family is worried that Diane's spirit could be adrift. Desperate for comfort, Masaharu and Yuri turn to psychics, many of whom claim Diane is still alive. One clairvoyant tells Yuri to put a good luck charm under Diane's pillow and lay her favorite clothes on her bed to prevent any pain she may be experiencing. On the one-year anniversary of Diane's disappearance, the family's Buddhist minister tells the Suzukis that he heard Diane's voice call to him during a sermon. She apparently said, I'm trying hard, don't lose hope. But as years pass, it's hard to keep faith. Slowly but surely, time moves on. It's not that Diane is forgotten, it's just that the pain numbs. Anyone who's been through this kind of grief knows that at a certain point, you have to find a new normal. It's a survival mechanism. So Diane's friends and family adjust to a new life without her until more than five years after Diane went missing, they're pulled back in. It's November of 1990. Rosalie Woodson stands in her dance studio, watching police tear apart her brand new bathroom. Rosalie waited five years to renovate it. The bathroom was overdue for a facelift, but she held off in case there was anything that could further the investigation, evidence they missed. Finally, in September, she decided to retile the walls and floor. She gave the upper half of the bathroom a fresh coat of paint. The process felt healing. What she didn't know was, as she was browsing paint colors, police were learning about a breakthrough in forensic technology, a new available substance called luminol. It helps detect the presence of bodily fluids under black lights. On November 14, 1990, the police rip up Rosalie's new tile and douse the bathroom in luminol. They use a laser to search for traces of hair, fibers, blood, and human tissue. Here's what they take into evidence four pieces of Rosalie's baseboard, swabbings of the chemical phenophallion, which confirm whether or not blood is present, some scrapings which appear to be blood, and Rosalie's entire bathroom door. They eventually confirm that blood was present in the bathroom. They don't have the technology to tell whether it belongs to Diane, but it's enough for investigators to reclassify Diane's disappearance. It's no longer a missing person case. It's a no-body murder investigation. In 1990, Diane Suzuki's disappearance is reclassified as a homicide. At the time, Gary Diaz is the lead detective on the case, and he feels compelled to revisit the man of interest, the one whose home was searched five years earlier, who failed a polygraph test and had blood on his hand the day Diane went missing. 
who, when police first searched his property, they found a bloodstained shirt. That man. Diaz starts the process of filing for another warrant, but even with so much circumstantial evidence, according to Diaz, his captain doesn't initially feel they have probable cause to search the man's home again. It takes nine months for Diaz to build an argument strong enough to get the warrant approved, but in July 1991, he and his team are finally granted permission to search his property and the swamp that surrounds it. This time around, they pull out all the stops. Investigators are joined by a SWAT team, Army anthropologists, and members of the U.S. Army Central Identification Laboratory, or CIL. This Hawaiian CIL team had experience in searching locations like Vietnam for the remains of American military personnel. Just before 9 a.m., they get to work, but the odds are against them from the start. The swamp behind the man's property is basically a dump site for old mattresses and trash. It's a lot to wade through. And at this point, if evidence exists, it's been sitting in sludge for six years. One officer stumbles upon an old tree stump. For whatever reason, call it a hunch, he decides to knock it down. He digs around the dirt and pulls out a wad of fabric. It's clothing, a pair of tights, in Diane's size, matching the description of the clothes she had on when she disappeared, which feels like a major breakthrough but the items are too damaged to prove they belong to Diane. As far as clothes go, tights are pretty run-of-the-mill. So ultimately, it's just more circumstantial evidence. But officials find more, including a retaining wall that lines the swamp. The man's family claims it's decades old, but several officers notice that one particular section looks different from the rest. Most of it is made with old brown rocks, but this stretch is about four feet long and looks brand new. Plus, all the rocks are a different color. They're blue. Diaz and the teams remove the blue rock and discover a several feet deep pocket of loosely packed dirt, twigs, and leaves. If the rocks hadn't been moved in years, there wouldn't be any vegetation, just tightly packed dirt. It's a huge red flag. Army anthropologists take samples of the rock and soil. A few weeks later, they send Diaz the results. In their professional opinion, the area was disturbed six to nine months ago, which means sometime around November 1990, or right after Diaz and his team ripped up Rosalie's bathroom. In the book, Honolulu Homicide, co-author Diaz writes about this moment, saying, quote, "'It's all conjecture now on what we might have found had we been given approval to conduct the search we initially wanted to. We believed we had found Diane Suzuki's gravesite, or what was once her gravesite. Word of the search spreads like wildfire. For the Suzukis, the revelations are a blessing in disguise. Though they seem to suggest the worst, the news puts Diane's case back into the spotlight. But for some, it also renews fears. Rosalie Woodson has spent the past five years rebuilding her business. Now she faces a new wave of anxious parents, worried about the safety of her studio. She finds out they're calling the local police department, asking if it's safe to send their kids to dance class. The authorities assure parents they have nothing to worry about. Officers call her studio one of the safest places on the island. But still, for Rosalie, it's like an old wound has been ripped open again. All the pain and anger she worked so hard to release comes rushing back. The shattered tile in her bathroom feels like an all-too-perfect metaphor. 
Later that year, the investigative team submits Diane's case to prosecuting attorney Keith Kaneshiro. He wants to move forward, but thinks the evidence isn't strong enough to take to trial. They spend another two years building their case. Now, there's a reason prosecutors are careful. If they go to trial and the judge dismisses the case because of insufficient evidence, there's a possibility that they can't retry the case. And if they do go to trial without sufficient evidence and the man is found not guilty, they won't have another opportunity to try him for Diane's murder. It's a tricky situation. In late 1993, Keith convenes an investigative grand jury to gather and review evidence. It's not a trial. The hope is the grand jury will be able to access records that can only be obtained by court order and to subpoena witnesses. During the inquiry, Keith calls between 30 and 50 witnesses to the stand, including more than 25 police personnel. Among those subpoenaed is the man who was upstairs. Keith is upfront with the Suzuki's. This is a last ditch effort, a Hail Mary. Dozens of investigators and specialists have spent the better part of a decade building the strongest case they can, and it's never been enough. Unfortunately, the grand jury doesn't change anything. After it's finished, Keith vows to continue investigating, but the Suzuki's are once again left to wait, to hope that one day answers might come. By 1994, Susan Suzuki says that for her family, it's not about an indictment anymore. They don't care if someone is punished for a crime. Even if there was a trial, her parents probably wouldn't attend. It would be too difficult for them emotionally. The Suzuki's just want Diane, the ability to put her to rest, to hold the seven ceremonies that will guide her spirit toward enlightenment. The longer they wait, the longer Diane's spirit is left with nowhere to go. On July 6, 1997, exactly 12 years after Diane was killed, her family finds their own way of saying goodbye. They hold a private service for Diane at their Buddhist temple, the Aieya Tahiji Soto Mission. It's not the complete memorial ceremony, but it's the best they can do. The following year, in December 1998, Diane's mother Yuri passes away without a conclusion in her daughter's case. I'm not Buddhist. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for Masaharu to mourn his late wife before properly burying their baby girl. I think about him placing that cupcake on the family shrine, a small gift on what should have been a day of celebration, burning incense instead of birthday candles. And I hope that if Diane's spirit is still out there, she's found peace and knows how loved she is. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.